0: Legends are true. But overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes, the most legendary sauce has arrived. As McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wick, McDonald's the greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Wick nuggets, fries, and sprite ultra powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wick McDonald's. Ba da ba 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 go! At participating McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Since 1983, Eddie Trunk has been the voice for fans of rock, hard rock, and heavy metal. A best selling author, host of TV's That Metal Show, and seven national radio shows, including Trunk Nation, daily on Sirius XM. Interesting. Eddie offers the world his news making interviews, passionate analysis, honest commentary, and who knows what else. So, welcome to the Eddie Trunk Podcast.
2: everyone eddie trunk here and it is time for another episode of the eddie trunk podcast new every thursday podcast one.com spotify and apple podcast hope you are having a good week and thank you for subscribing and listening and checking out the podcast each and every week bringing you Great newsmaking interviews with some of your favorite artists in the world of rock. New and classic, of course. And as always, all the interviews you hear on the podcast originated on my Sirius XM radio show, Trunk Nation, heard on Volume Channel 106, live 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, and replaying every night, 10 to midnight Eastern Time, and full shows, audio, video, and more on demand on the SiriusXM app. If you are in the U.S. or Canada, please be sure to listen to me and subscribe and get SiriusXM. And check me out on Volume, doing Trunk Nation every day. You're getting only a tiny fraction of what I do on a daily basis talking rock on that channel. Be sure to follow me on social media, at Eddie Trunk, Twitter, Instagram, fan page on Facebook, and com, all access members of my website you can get my terrestrial radio show and more on demand if you become an all access member and music news is updated daily on eddytrunk.com so keep up with everything going on on the site as well and as far as social media twitter and instagram where i am most active and there is that fan page on facebook if you are so interested but um Twitter would be the primary, with Instagram a close second. So this week, another double-dip interview. Uh, We'll start this week with Don Dockin. Don called in recently to talk about a new release of old, old Dockin music, music that was made before he even had a record deal. He put out a bunch of early recordings recently. We talk about that. And also a very, very, um, I guess you could say pointed response from Don when I ask him what he has to say to fans who are critical of some of his recent live performances. You don't want to miss that. That's all coming up first in a matter of minutes here with Don Dokken. And then second, Buck Dharma. Of Blue Oyster Cult, Blue Oyster Cult has made a new album called "The Symbol Remains" that is really, really good, and it's their first new album in nineteen years. Buck joins me to talk a little BOC and about the new record that will be second. So, an extra large, extended podcast once again this week with two lengthy interviews: first Don Dokken, second Blue Oyster Cult member. And uh, one of the two original members still in the band, guitarist, vocalist, Buck Dharma. Also, don't forget, if you're interested in personalized videos, I am on Cameo. So if you'd like to order, go to Cameo.com and just search my name. Okay, we're going to get right to it this week. So when we come back, we'll start with Don Dockin. Coming up next.
0: The Eddie Trunk Podcast.
2: Uniform professionals sign up to serve causes greater than themselves. If you've ever served in the military, law enforcement, firefighting, or frontline medical communities, check this out. You are eligible for free membership at GovX.com, the greatest online shopping site for Americans of service like you. And boy, do we appreciate you, especially now. Your job demands a lot from you. From deployments to long shifts and the dangerous situations most people don't have the courage to face. And there's a reason why GovX believes service-minded patriots like you deserve special recognition. And man, do you ever. I've said it many, many times. You folks are the real rock stars. And GovX.com delivers the deals on all the gear you need for your on and off-duty life. Register at GovX for instant access to discounts on epic brands like Oakley, Yeti, Garmin, Vortex, Optics, Benchmade, Danner, and more. This site was built exclusively for the men and women who serve our country and communities. That's why every month GovX supports nonprofits serving the military, first responder, or law enforcement communities. We don't just thank you for your service, we honor it. So sign up. It's fast, it's easy, it's totally free. Become a member today and use TRUNK, T-R-U-N-K, for $15 off your first order of $50 or more. GovX.com, savings for those who serve. Use my last name, TRUNK, T-R-U-N-K, for $15 off your first order of of $50 or more. That's govx.com.
0: This is the Eddie Trunk Podcast.
2: Welcome back, everybody, to this week's Eddie Trunk Podcast. As I mentioned, we got two interviews for you again this week coming up a little bit later on. It will be Buck Dharma talking Blue Oyster Cult and their new album. But right now, Don Dokken, Don joined me on my SiriusXM show, Trunk Nation on Volume, a couple weeks ago, to discuss a new album of old material, material made even before the Break in the Chains album that he recently released. And of course, we got into some other stuff as well. So here is Don Dokken, first up on the podcast. Enjoy. How are you, man? I'm hanging in there. How's your health, man? When I saw you at Nam. Uh, earlier this year, when in a time when we actually could all be together, uh, you were showing me the hell you were going through with your neck and your back and all the surgeries and everything you've endured. How how you feeling now?
0: I feel fine, you know. I mean, physically, I'm hiking every day on my property you know, up here in New Mexico, and but yeah, my hand's still paralyzed and my arm's still paralyzed, and I've only got about a five percent improvement in all this time. But it's the way it goes, man. But I got a lot of stuff coming up in the next two weeks like a famous acupuncturist ketamine treatments all kinds of stuff coming up to try to get the get the fingers moving again. because they're still like i got about this much now i got about remember my hand he saw me he's all swollen but if you can see me it looks pretty normal now it's just the fingers are all curled in but uh it is what it is you know it's been eight months and you know can i play guitar no can i play piano no can I type on the keyboard? No. <laughs> Got to use a microphone, but you know, yeah, that was a rough time. I just been out of the hospital a couple of days when I did that, uh, word show and I wasn't, I was not in any condition to do that word show. I was out of my mind. I was pretty, uh, pretty out of it, but I'm good now. I'm just sitting here right now. I don't know what the weather's like at your house, but I'm looking out the window it's been snowing all night and raining and, uh, it's, they say it's 115 degrees in Vegas, and where I'm at, it's snowing and raining, and it's just a weird, weird weather. And California's burning down, and some weird weather going on, man. Are you Are you living
2: in New Mexico now full time, or do you? Are you still in L.A.?
0: I go back and forth. I still have the house in Canyona Canyon, and uh, both the houses actually, and I rented them out since I, I'm up here so much. It's a different environment, you know, I'm on 13 acres, no neighbors, it's peaceful and quiet. I got another studio up here and it's just a different uh, way of life. You know, I, I'm just was kind of living my LA my whole life. I'm just kind of got burned out on it and found this crazy house up here up in the mountains and decided to kind of go underground while I get well.
2: So you you talk about your your health ailments and what you're dealing with and and still some some stuff you're 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 dealing with and going to be going through. What are the doctors telling you as far as a prognosis? I mean, not having use of one of your hands as a musician because even though you don't do it a lot on stage, you do play guitar and as you said, piano. You write, I'm sure, on guitar. What are they telling yeah. you long term? Are they telling you that this is going to eventually come back?
0: Uh, the doctor that did the surgery, I call him the butcher. That's my favorite uh, name for him because this surgery has been done to a lot of people. My road manager fingers at it. Everybody seemed fine. Why, why he paralyzed my arm, my hand. I don't know. He, he, he fucked up. That's the bottom line. You know, I don't care what he says. He screwed up, but, uh, he says, give it a year. It's been eight months and, uh, I got a little bit of movement, you know, but I still can't hold a pen. I can't pick up a glass. I can't wipe my butt you know I, I mean I'm left-handed now but uh they said you know year and a half it could come back but I'm not waiting around for that guy I'm, I'm talking to specialists and thinking about having tendon transplants into my thumb and taking some of the muscles that are working and moving them to my fingers and I got a lot of shit going on in my life about trying to get my hand back but you know Eddie I play guitar for 50 years if I can't play anymore I can't play anymore you know it's the way it goes and uh, I just got to accept it. You know, some people have this surgery and end up paralyzed. So uh, I'm not happy about it, you know, but uh, you got to be positive and think positive and do my physical therapy twice a week and see 8 million doctors and everybody's got an opinion. A lot of doc I've seen a lot of famous physicians and they will say off the record, the guy screwed up big time but they won't go on the record and say, you know, no doctor wants to throw another doctor under the bus, but off the record, all the specialists I've seen, which I would have, wish I would have went to those guys instead. They all said, man, this guy really, this guy really, you know, tore you apart, man. You know, you got a scar all the way down from your neck to the middle of your back. And they said, even my sutures look like a, like an amateur did them. So I don't know what happened. He was supposed to be the best, a specialist, Yada, yada, yada. I went to Cedar sinai supposedly one of the best hospitals in California, and they screwed me up, you know? So uh, it happens, you know? So I just got to okay. deal with it. Uh, I'm trying to hit a holistic approach now with acupuncture. I'm going to see a doctor in a couple of weeks that, like, people have had car accidents, been paralyzed, motorcycle accidents, paralyzed, and this guy gave me acupuncture and they can walk again. So, I'm going
2: to go see him. One other thing on this, Don, and then I want to talk about this record. So you Mm -hmm. mentioned that award show that that you and I were at, which is the last time I saw you, which was, I guess, February of this year. But you, you, uh, and you said, you know, you were struggling there. And I think your quote was you out of your mind or whatever. You recently did some live shows. And um, I, I'm sure you know, uh, you know, there there are fans that probably don't quite know what you're going through and what's going on with you and who have been pretty critical of your live performances recently. But yep. do you think that's a lot, you know, how do you respond to that? And do you think a lot of that is due to the fact that people don't know what you're dealing with?
0: Well, I think they can kiss my ass. They can kiss my ass. I see the criticism and and I'm like, you know, it wasn't just my arm and my, and my hand, you know, it was a lot of things. When I came out of surgery, I couldn't walk. You know, I was in a walker. I was in a wheelchair. I had nothing. I couldn't even walk more than 10 feet without sitting down. So when I did that show, I thought, I remember saying, I'm not sure I can stand here for, for uh, five minutes and sing this song. I probably won't make it, you know, but I did. And then I went out about two months later as a, test and we did that lynch mob leader for Dawkins show and i made it through the first two shows and then on the third show i had to sit down on a chair i just couldn't stand it. my my legs were given out because when they severed all the muscles and cut all the nerves you know i don't i'm not a doctor apparently they severed muscles to my hips muscles to my back my legs everything they just they just butchered me so it was a really It's been a hard struggle, you know. I hike every day with my dogs, and I go on my deer trails and my property, and I walk. It's not easy. It's painful, but I just keep walking and walking and hiking and trying to build up my leg muscles. And then people said, yeah, I saw Don live. man. He was terrible. He was just standing there. He didn't look too good. And I'm like, well, they don't know what I went through, you know. It's a miracle I was was even, even able to pull up three shows in a row. With Lynch Mob, we did three days, no day off. I pulled it off. Was I at the top of my game? No. Was I singing my best? No. That's another issue. Um, when they went through my back into my neck, apparently they damaged my, one of my vocal cords. So I'm like, great. That's why I'm sound like today. I sound a little husky. <clears throat> you know, my voice is a little husky now, and and uh, so I, they did something to my vocal cords too. So. I'm just seeing every doctor in the planet trying to get better. And, you know, as far as the fans go, I learned a long time ago for every hundred fans that want to say the band wasn't good, the other 3,000 people were happy. And that's all that matters, man. The people are singing along with Dawkins and singing the choruses and fists in the air and singing into the fire and it's not love. That's the only important thing. I can't worry about, as I've always said, there'll always be a guy, as you know, on the internet that works at Subway making tuna sandwiches, and that's the guy that gets on the internet. And, and this one guy used to crack me up and say, I saw a doc, and eight times last year. They sucked every time. And I'm like, then why in the hell did you come to the show eight times? <laughs> well, yeah. Why'd you go eight times? <laughs> you came to see us eight times, and you really hated us. Well, stop coming to the show, for God's <laughs> That's so, like uh,
2: the same. I, <laughs> I get it. It's that's funny, like the, right? I, Yeah, because I've been doing this 37 years, and it's funny because, you know, everybody has those people, uh, people that hate me, but they can tell me every yeah. single word I've ever said on the radio. And I'm like, well, why are you listening every day if you hate me so much? So, yeah, yes, I mean, I that's don't... always an element of what, what we all do. You, you have to learn to sort of uh, roll that off your back. Are you going to do more live shows, or are you going to wait until you feel... Uh, you know, closer to yourself, or or you have stuff in line. And how did you feel about doing shows? Because I know you were concerned. Because you're one of the bands that went out there and played during the the pandemic. I know Red Beach had to play with you because John yeah. Levin couldn't do those dates. So so talk a little bit about that. The future and what what it was like doing a show in 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 lockdown.
0: Well, it was an experiment. You know, we we did Virginia. It was a five thousand seater outdoors. They allowed twenty five hundred people in. They checked all their temperatures, uh, eight eight feet spacing. And uh, it all worked out great. You know, we had about a couple thousand people. But as far as a concert goes and me being on stage, you know, did I feel the rush? No. You know, you don't, everybody's spread out all over the lawn and everybody's sitting down. And it's not the same as a concert. I didn't feel the spiritual rush of, People singing along and fists in the air. I didn't feel it. No. Then the next day we played Arkansas, another couple thousand people. Same thing, social distancing. And, uh, you know, and I had people surrounding me and the band. We had security guards, like, wrapped around us. I didn't want people to try to come up to me, shake my hand, get an autograph. I had to blow that off because I wasn't going to take the chance. But we pulled those two shows off. And then um, we had another show this month in Texas. We had a show in two shows in Texas, one in Michigan. And I finally said to the boys, you know what? I think we're playing Russian roulette here. You know, I mean, we keep doing this. We're going to, one of us is going to catch it. So let's just call it a day and go home. And, you know, I'll finish up this Lost Songs album. We'll work on a new studio album which is like two thirds done already. We'll have a new studio out and ready for next summer. I can only assume that next summer, everybody and their mother is going to be on tour. I mean, it's going to be crazy if they come up the vaccine, but you know, look at these stadium tours like Motley Crue and all these big tours that got canceled. The only band that I know at right now that's out doing shows all over the country is Metallica, you know, and they're playing an hour away from my house. It's, Pretty brilliant what they're doing. You pay $125, bucks, 6 people per car. You drive in to the lot, and you sit in your car, and you watch Metallica in your car. Well,
2: it's a movie, though. It's a movie, though, Don. They're not it's actually there. They they shot a movie. a
0: movie. I didn't know that.
2: Yeah, no, they're not physically there. They, they, they shot a concert film, and they're showing it on drive-in movie theater screens.
0: Well, I mean, I don't get that. You just... Stay home, watch it on HBO.
2: <laughs> but I mean, that, that's YouTube. the hook, though. They're only, make, your only way you can see it is by going out to the drive-in. They're not putting it online or on any streaming outlet.
0: Well, God bless them. Uh, there's not many drive-in movie theaters around anymore. When I was right. a teenager, that's, you know, when you, when you had a date and you wanted to fool around, you go to the <laughs> drive-in movie, man. You hopped in the back seat and you got it on. You know, I didn't watch the movie. It was just trying to get in the backseat of the car and see if, I could, see if I could cop a feel at 16. And I had a 63 Corvette. Let me tell you, it's really hard to fool around in a 63 Corvette. It's pretty crowded. <laughs> I did but, you the know, same thing. You yeah, did.
2: I, I, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, well, yes. But no. Well, I, my movie theater experiences in the drive-ins were even earlier than that because there's none around here in New Jersey anymore, but... The big night out for me as a little kid with my parents was we went to a, a place called Storts, which was where they brought the food to you at the window of your car. You sat in your car yeah. to eat, and then you went across the highway and you watched a movie. And you hope you didn't drive away with the speaker still attached to the window because you, came, you right. hung it on the you hung the speaker on your window coming off the pole. So I, um, I remember driving as well.
0: I remember it like it was yesterday. My mom would take us to the drive-in and. You know, and then when they had the break, we'd all run to the – they had a snack bar at our theaters. Yes. We'd run to the snack bar and grab popcorn and a hot dog. And in between the movies, they even had a playground. I was probably seven or eight years old. Yep. And, uh, you know, and we, went, and we went to see, you know, movies and the double feature. And all I cared about was the cartoons in between. And, <laughs> uh, you know, it was good times. And But, you know, in L.A., everybody – there was a drive-in movie theater every couple of miles. They're all swap meets now. Hey, if you ever want a blast
2: from the past about drive-ins, I discovered this the other day on Amazon Prime streaming. There's actually a, a a film, and all it is is an hour and a half of all of the old ads from the 50s, 60s, and 70s for food concessions and public service announcements that showed in drive-in movie theaters. It's wild. It totally, you know, get your hot dog now before the show starts. It's great. It's a lot of fun to That's see. It takes you back.
0: Popcorn it's psychological yeah. you know you're not even hungry and the movie stops, you nobody's hungry and you see the the popcorn and the guys making the hot <laughs> dog and pizza slices you're like mom i'm hungry you know it's psychological it was great marketing before the days of the internet it was great marketing you know but i have fond memories of going to drive-in theaters but i didn't even know there was enough movie theaters left in the country for Metallica to pull up this gig, you know?
2: Yeah, I don't know. I was I was surprised about that, too, but it's, it's definitely what's happening.
0: You guys you guys are too young, I remember, but there was these movies in the 50s called Attack of the 50-Foot Woman, and she's walking through Vegas, and she's a 150 feet tall, and there was Attack of This and Attack of That, and I actually saw that movie when I was a kid, and it turned out when I moved up to Benedict Canyon, she was my neighbor about three houses up the way, and now she was about, I don't know, 78 years old. And uh, it was kind of a sad story. She would go to those, you know, those comic cons, 50s movies, uh, things. She signed autographs and all this stuff. And she came back to her house and nobody had seen her for about eight months. She just kind of went underground. And finally the neighbors said, you know, where where in the hell is, you know, what's her face who played the tech 50? And actually she was the first First issue of Playboy, she was the centerfold. And anyway, she, um, so they went next door to see what was going on with her, and she's okay. And uh, she'd been dead for about eight months. Oh my goodness. He was mummified, dude. They tore the house down, and that was kind of creepy. But uh, she used to come down to my house and with her big hat on and a blonde wig, and she, Take a stick and poke at my mulberries and pick my berries off my tree, but you know it's weird. But I remember when I saw her, I thought I I saw her as a kid at the attack of the fifty foot woman. You know, yeah. it was a wild, wild times. You know, and, yeah, it's a, anyway, it's a classic. It, it was sad that you know somebody like that. She went to a thing in Florida and to do autographs and stopped all her mail and stopped everything. Came back and she passed away and. Nobody even noticed she was missing for eight months until they found her upstairs. And it was very, it was kind kind of a tragic thing. I don't want to go that way. So anyway, let's talk about music.
2: Yeah, Lost Song, 78 through 81. This is a bunch of stuff prior to the first Dockin' record, Breaking the Chains, which is where you came on most people's radar, and then even more so yep. Tooth and Nail afterwards. Tell me about the decision, Don, to release these early recordings. Many of them are, I'm sure, demos. I don't know what the source material was, the story yeah. behind it. But why, why now did you decide what, you, you wanted people to hear this stuff and to put it out properly?
0: I don't, you know. It's it's a hard. God, I've been doing so many interviews on this record, and I try to come up with the same answer and not the same answer. But you know, look, I was just, you know, I'd had my surgery, my hand wasn't working. We weren't on tour. I was recuperating, and I and I bought an old uh, '64 Stingray Corvette convertible, which I love, my toy. But I couldn't fit it in the garage, and I'm like, I can't leave it outside. It's going to get ruined. So I decided to get a couple of guys and a truck and I said, let's just clean the damn garage out and get all get rid of all this junk. I've lived in like six homes in my life. So you keep collecting more junk and more junk and more junk. And pretty soon it's all this crap in the in the garage. The joke was I'd stored it all for decades. And at the end of the day, by the time I was done cleaning the garage out, about 95% of it was going in the trash. So old equipment, you know, broken cases uh you name it just stuff so uh toward the end there were some shelves in the garage and I found this box you know this big plastic container I pulled it down it was really heavy and I opened it up to see if there's anything in there and I saw two inch reels of tape and for, for the youngsters that don't know that we used to record on two inch analog tape now I hadn't recorded on two inch analog tape in 25 years so I'm like what the hell is this so I open it up, I see the track sheet, and it says, Michael Wagner, Hamburg, Germany, December 5th, 1979. Wow. Then the next tape said, Media Art Recording Studios, uh, Wynn Davis demo, Don, Don Dockin Project, 1978. And I went, okay. So I decided to bake the tapes, because you have to bake them after they've set for decades. I baked them and we threw them into a hard drive and I pulled them up. And here was all this material that I had done between my age of probably between the age of like 23 and 25. And I put up all these songs and I found these songs and, you know, and some had a drum machine on them and some didn't have a solo but it was mostly all my vocals, original, all my guitar playing original uh five of the songs we recorded in Hamburg, Germany, with Michael Wagner when I met him when Juan Crucier was in the band. You know, Juan was in the band for four years. And Juan and I did the first tour in Germany together as a three-piece. So it was just Juan on bass and vocals, me on guitar and vocals, and a guy named Greg pecca on drums. And one night, Michael's studio was across the way. I remember him decided to run cables into the club, it was called the Sounds Club. It was like the biggest club in Hamburg. And he recorded, our, he recorded our whole show. Unfortunately, the tape was so deteriorated, we could only save two songs. And there's two songs on this record that are live. And I have to say, I'm not trying to pump up the record. These two live recordings for a three-piece band, it's pretty, they sound pretty badass, I think. I mean, it's live, no overdubs, no faking, no fixing it. It's, it is it right. is what it is, man. But, you know, the only thing I have to laugh about is my guitar solos. They go on forever. <laughs> <laughs> you could go out and get a pizza and go home, make some phone calls, come back, and my solo was still going on. Well, you know, but, Don, Don I think... The
2: I think that's a, that would be a big revelation to a lot of people who only know Dokken from the, the later stuff is uh, the fact that you played so much guitar early on and then when the band came on the radar and MTV and all that and all the big success, you, you virtually played no guitar on stage with Dokken. How did that happen? Was that just because of the arrival of Lynch and you decided that you were just going to let him take that or why did you shy away from playing guitar much live on stage?
0: Well, yes and no. Our first tour we did, arena tour, after breaking the chains in America, was with Bloister, Colt, Aldo, Nova, and Dokken. That was our first tour. And then Aldo sp- split off, and then it was Bloister, Colt, Y&T, and Daken. And we got to the end of the tour, uh, you know, in New York. But in, during that tour, I was playing guitar with George. We were both playing guitar. I was playing rhythm. We were also playing solos together. We actually had solos that we would do in harmony. And on the way back, uh, we played a club somewhere, Milwaukee or somewhere, and they recorded the whole show. And it is a, a concert of me playing guitar, George playing guitar. We're both doing solos. And they put that album out in the 90s. It was called from conception and it's just a live recording of us, which I f- completely forgot about, but you know, it was coming to that time of the David Lee Ross and the Vince Neals and all that were coming up. And everybody said, Don, you should just sing, you know, because you got to remember if you're playing guitar and you're singing, I'm stuck on the microphone. I can't really move around left or right, or I'm stuck on the mic. I wasn't doing like Sammy Hager. He used to wear a headset. So, and, you know, and George didn't want me playing guitar anyway. He was just jealous. So, uh, you know, so I put the guitar down and I became, as you would say, the classic lineup of a lead singer, bass player, guitar player, drummer. But the first tour I played guitar, first two tours of Germany, I was a lead guitar player. But, uh, you know, but George, you know, was 10 times better guitar player than I was. So I said, okay, you're the guitar player, I'm the singer, and that's kind of why I put the guitar down.
2: Talk about what brought you to Germany in the first place because you know, you're a California guy, but you actually relocated to Germany to sort of chase the dream early on, which these songs yeah. document. And, and also, Don, while you were there, there's a well-documented story about you helping out Scorpions with the Blackout record. What, right. how, how did that tie into all of this if it did at all
0: it did um well i did the first tour you know of course i'd never been out of america I'm, I'm from california why i never been out of america and we were playing at a club in the valley called the rock corporation and a guy came in and was listening to us and said you know i own a club in germany and You guys should come to Germany because a lot of these documentaries about the sunset strip and the rainbow and the whiskey a go-go they're true. And they're not true. What they forget is between 78 and 79, the rock scene died. I was there. It just died. The only band that escaped it was Van Halen put out the album I think in 78 because yes. I did a lot of shows at Van Halen. I got flyers it says, Van Halen, Quiet Riot, Doc, and Two Nights, sold out. You know, I got these flyers still. But Van Halen broke away, and I think everybody thought, all right, Van Halen got a record deal. Now we're all going to get signed. It didn't happen. And, if you, and you know your history, Eddie. In 78 to 9, all of a sudden, the whole music scene changed. And it was Oingo Boingo. And it was the motels. And hey, it wait. was... My Sharona, the new wave thing came roaring into L.A. And literally, I would say literally overnight, we couldn't get booked. You know, it's like if you had long hair and you were heavy. They didn't want to know about you. The new wave scene and the punk scene, it was kind of like this. A little bit of rock. Then you had the Dickies. You had the Black Flag. You had the Weasels. You had the Mentors. You had all this hard rock, hardcore punk Then you had the New Wave and the Blondies were on the radio. And so you had New Wave, punk, and and the rock thing was kind of pushed out. And that's when I said, I I can't do New Wave. I don't like this kind of music. I don't want to do it. And this guy from this club said, well, you know, in Germany, it's like Saxon, Judas Priest, and, uh, you know, and all these bands and Scorpions, even though those bands had not made it in America yet. Right. So I went to Germany and did the club tour. And I was excited because maybe if you're not a big Beatles fan, you don't know that the Beatles kind of got their start in Germany, not mm-hmm. the, Ca- the cavern club. That was one of the things, but they, you know, the Beatles went to Germany and played all these clubs in Hamburg, the top 10, the Chicago, uh, the star club, the Beatles, you know, were in Germany for like six months playing top 40 practically and playing two hours a night. And people don't know that about the Beatles that they kind of got their start in Germany. So here we are playing the same clubs the Beatles played. So I'm all happy. I'm excited. And we go to Germany and the guy that took us to Germany who owned the club was a musician. And he just said, look, I got drums. I got amps. I got equipment. All you got to do is buy three plane tickets. You can stay at my house. I know every club owner in Germany. I'll book you a tour of Germany, and you guys can play. And I said, "Great!" You know, Saxon was popular, and bands like that. I'm like, "This is more, what more I'm into." Our music was more like that, which you will hear on the lost songs. You can hear the influences. My guitars, my guitar souls are more like Richie Blackmore. A couple of the riffs are kind of like Thin Lizzy, and so that's what that is. Why we went to Germany. Cause the new wave scene just kicked everyone's ass and it was over for a couple of years. So that's why I went to Germany. And what did you exactly
2: do with Scorpions on blackout? Because Klaus was having vocal problems at the time. Did you sub for him? What, what went on there specifically?
0: Yeah. A lot of rumors about that shit. It was all stupid. And, um, you know, for years people thought I was going to be the new singer and, you know, and blah, blah, blah. And it was all nonsense. Thank God. I'm so great friends with, Rudy and Klaus and and Herman. I did, I sang on Herman Rarebell's album. You know, I became friends with them. But I went back to Germany a year later, and I thought I'll go back again, and you know, and do another tour. the The guy that did this the first time said you shouldn't come. It's going to be wintertime. It's going to be tough. It's going to be brutal. But you know, I wanted to go, and I went anyway. So we had a kid named Nico LaFrance. He was a young kid, about 23 years old, and he had gone to America on the very first Scorpions tour when they were just playing basically small venues. And I think it was back, you know, uh, like their third album or something. So he was our road manager because he spoke perfect English. And he went to America to interpret for the Scorpions, because they didn't speak good English. So he's driving us around Germany, and he says, you know, I know the Scorpions and blah, blah, blah. And it, it's, this is all fate, and people say, how did you make it? I think it's an act of God and a lot of luck, uh, really a lot of luck. And one night we are playing at a club called the Big Apple, and Nico says, I've got to run to the airport and pick up Dieter Dirks, who was the producer of the Scorpions. I got to pick him up from the airport. He's got a five-hour layover. And he wants me to, to pick him up and go to dinner. And And Nico say, hey, there's this band from America called Dokken. Would you like to check him out? And Dieter's like, okay, I'll come to the club. I'll check him out. And the, the God's truth is, he said, he came and saw us. I was all excited. And he says, uh, "Done. I, I, I don't like your band so much. <laughs> <laughs> A, now, this was a different lineup. Juan didn't go that time. It was Gary Holland from Great White, Greg Leon, a couple other people. I changed members to go. And he goes, I, I don't really like your band. I'm like, hey, you know, at least you're honest. Yeah. And he says, but I like your voice. He goes, you have the same vibrato. You sing with vibrato. I said, yeah, that's just the way I sing. He goes, and Klaus has vibrato, too. You know, a lot of singers don't use vibrato. And he said, you know, Klaus has just had surgery on his voice, and he needs to rest his voice. He can't sing five, six hours a day. And would you be willing to sing some of the high, high, very high vocals on some of these songs, like way up there? And you know, when I was a young kid, my voice was, I'm still a tenor, so my voice was higher and shit. You know, so I said, okay, yeah, I'd do it. So I went to I went to a studio. And I sang on a couple of songs like uh, No One Like You, Give Me All I Need, Dynamite. If you really want to listen to those three songs and listen to the very highest harmony, it's buried in the background, that's me. So that's what I did. I went and sang the high notes to, to save Klaus's voice for the lead vocals. And because I did that, Dieter said, I'll let you use my B room for four days and you can make some demos for free. So Michael came up from Hamburg, and Michael Wagner came up. We made demos, and then at the same time, check this out. We're in a studio that Scorpions, Rory Gallagher, Accept, and Doc, and we're all in the studio at the same time in all the different rooms. I mean, it was wild, man. I mean, it's all, these, all wow. this energy, all this beautiful, talented musicians, and uh, so... I remember Rory would get up at 10 in the morning, and he would go in the studio, and I was a big fan of Rory Gallagher, and he would go in there for about four or five hours with 15 guitars surrounding him. I mean, like we're talking about very expensive guitars. And he'd pick one up and he'd play it, he'd go, nah. He'd pick up the next one, he'd go, mm, nah. And then he'd pick up the next one, nah, and I watched him do it. And it would take him four or five hours to find the guitar he wanted to play that day and the sound. And he would do that, record for about an hour. And then he'd come get me and say, Don, it's lunchtime. Let's go to the pub. So <laughs> Rory and I and Rudy, and we'd all go to the pub. It was called Peter's Pub down the street in this little town. And we'd all get shit-faced. And then the session was over. We're all hammered, you know? <laughs> so, I mean, it's like, we'd go back to work. We're like, I don't know, man, I'm pretty wasted. So that was funny. And I miss Rory. He was a great, great guy. And... uh and Accept was in there recording, I think, maybe Russian Roulette. Michael Wagner had done Balls the Wall. So uh, we, did, we we ended up taking this tape, and I gave it to a woman named Gabby Hauka, who was the manager of Accept. And she said, I really like this demo. Let me take it to Hamburg. I have a meeting with Ralph Barlell, the president of Carrera Records. And I'm like, "Who? they're a French label. They got Saxon and... I said, great, take it. So she takes the tape. She comes back two days later. I pick her up and she hands me a plane ticket. And she goes, here. I said, what? He goes, he wants to sign you. I said, you're shitting me, right? He'll give me a record deal. Yeah, I said, you know, and I'm very excited because I hadn't nothing to go home to. Nothing. And I said, how much? And she said, she goes, uh, fifteen thousand marks. And I said, Okay, how much is that in dollars? She goes, no, you know what? Tell me you want 20,000 marks. And I went, and how much is that in dollars? And she goes, uh, about 7,500 bucks. <laughs> 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 so the truth is, God's truth is, I signed my first record deal for $7,500 and Ralph paid for the recording. And since Dieter had helped me, you know, let me sing in the Scorps, let me do demos at his studio, I felt obligated, you know, to go to this, go and record "Breaking the Chains" in his studio. The problem was, I have now, I had, now I have a record deal. I have a studio. I have Michael, and I have no band. There was no band. It was just me. The guys that played in the demo was uh, Tom Crusier, Juan Crusier's brother, and Bobby Blaster played the drums on those demos. Mm. So it there was no, there was no George, there was no Mick. Right. So I called George and Mick and said, Hey guys, I got a record deal. I want to make a record. I got to get a band together. I flew back to LA, I auditioned George and Mick and I said, okay, let's all go to Germany. And we did. And we all flew to Germany and we rehearsed in a bomb shelter in the bottom of a hotel called the Hotel Trost. It was an old bomb shelter from the war and we rehearsed in there and went in there and did breaking the chains. And and that is the whole story compressed on how I got from doing demos to getting a record deal and George and Mick joined the band.
2: You did, you did all the hard work and then those guys swooped in and <laughs> got a part of all the glory with the record deal. You teed it all up for him. That's a beautiful situation, man. I, for well, those guys, they, they had they it easy of, by comparison.
0: Yeah, they, yeah, they kind of did. You know, yeah. I got the record deal. I did wrote most of the songs. I, I gave them a, I remember when I called Mick uh, to join the band, I said, what are you guys up to? And um, George and Mick were driving trucks for Gallo wine, delivering Gallo wine liquor stores. And I went, Oh man, you guys are down and out. You got nothing to lose. Come to Germany. So we did. Of course, you know, I go back to America. I try to get a record deal. George left the band. He was going to try. He tried out for Aussie. It didn't happen. In between that, Warren D. Martini joined the band. We showcased at the Whiskey for Five Labels uh, with Motley Crue. It was Motley Crew and Dawkins. Warren was in the band. And uh, we showcased. It didn't happen. And uh, finally, I just went on bended knee to Electra, found Cliff Bernstein, who's the most famous, biggest manager in the planet. And he got me a meeting with. Uh, the record company president of Electra. And I remember, it's kind of like the old movies. I didn't have an appointment. I just walked in and barged in and said, hi, my name's Don Dawkins. And I don't have an appointment, but uh, just please give me five minutes. Just give me five minutes. Just listen to my record. Just give me five minutes. He's like, "Uh, okay. So I put on Breaking the Chains. He liked it and he signed us.
2: Amazing. Hey, I hate to do this, but because you got so many great stories, but I got to wrap up because I'm, pretty much out of time, but we will tell everybody to check out the, you know, this is just the backdrop for this record and these songs that you'll hear on the newly released Dokken record, the lost song 78 through 81. It's out. Now you can hear all this early material cleaned up, presented the best way it can be and get a peek into the early history of Dokken. Again, the record is out now the lost songs, 78 through 81. Well, Don, ...with some uh, interesting comments there on a bunch of different stuff... ...and also, of course, talking about the new old album... uh, ...new album of old material, I should say, that was recently released. That interview was done over Zoom, so that explains the audio sound there... ...and that also means that if you are a SiriusXM subscriber, you can see that interview... ...because it was captured on video, that's why it was done on Zoom... It's now available to check out on the SiriusXM app. Coming up next, interview number two, Buck Dharma of Blue Oyster Cult. Stand by.
1: Say, chico pit Mr. 305, better said, Mr. Worldwide, I'm Mandito Christian Perez. I had to use the real name. Why? Because now it's the podcast. From negative to positive, which you can catch on Apple Podcast, Podcast One, and Spotify. Flow to the rider. I don't even know if you know how much they play you around the world or anywhere my brother no matter how much bread we make dog we can't take it with us no matter how many houses cars whatever we acquire can't take it with us with that said anything we make is always to give back dog why are we starting a podcast well it's real simple with the times that we're living in right now in the world i think you need to be motivated inspired educated aware positive so what I'm here is just to motivate the world and let them know when we talk, we call it Spain a Spain. So you're going to hear the truth. So I look forward to the podcast. I look forward to showing y'all, teaching y'all how to take it from a negative to a positive. So get ready. From <laughs> negative to positive, which you can catch on Apple Podcast, Podcast One, and Spotify.
2: Eddie Trunk back with you on this week's Eddie Trunk Podcast. As promised, two interviews once again this week. Buck Dharma Blue Oyster Cult, brand new album called The Symbol Remains. Really good. First new BOC album in 19 years. Here's Buck to tell us all about it. Buck, how are you? Eddie, I'm good. How are you? Good. It's been a little bit, but then again, you haven't made a record in 19 years. (laughs) True that. True
3: that. Yep. Where are you these days? You living in Florida still? No, uh, I moved to uh, Maryland. I'm in Annapolis, Maryland now.
2: Oh, is that right? What brought you there? Uh, grandkids mostly. Oh, okay. Very
3: very yeah, cool. How you know, how have you been how have you been doing? Old, you know? <laughs> He's a grandpa now.
2: Yeah. That's amazing. How have you been doing? Yeah. Uh Buck, you guys are a band that is is, you know, very active still in terms of touring and playing around the world. How have you been in the last 6 months with the 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 lockdown? You just been staying put?
3: Uh, yeah, I'm on vacation for a change and it's, uh, it's weird to, to basically not be able to travel much or appear in front of people in crowds, but, um, we're fine. You know, bands, bands doing great. We just released a really strong record. You know, I'm kind of surprised how good it is myself and, uh, we're happy about it. And that's uh, we're making videos and, and promoting the record in, in lieu of touring because we can't tour right now, but, uh, we're looking forward to the bug dying down, so we can get back out there.
2: Well, the album is actually officially out on October 9th. The symbol remains, and I got to tell you, and and again, you said it yourself just a second ago. So don't don't take this the wrong way, but I was shocked at how good it is. <laughs> you know, I mean, you guys have made uh, obviously great landmark records in your career, but you don't expect something that has this much energy and I don't know the word for it, but when I listen to it, I'm just like, this to me is like the best new music Blue Oyster Cult has made in a long time. Now, I know it's been almost 20 years since the last studio record, but there's just a great feel and vibe to this record. How did you accomplish that? Uh, Tell me about putting this together and making this record.
3: Yeah, I think think overall it just reflects who blue oyster cult is in 2020 i mean this band uh the the current membership's been together probably longer than the original membership at this point and and the band is just on fire we're just really good if i must say so and we had two main criteria for making a new record after such a long layoff and one is that it's inevitably going to be compared to our legacy stuff so it had to be strong it had to be good in that regard and at stand up to the comparison and the second thing is that it had to have enough cowbell on it you know we didn't want to hear that <laughs> it needed more cowbell so there's <laughs> the lead cut has got cowbell prominently featured and it's played by albert bouchard our original drummer too so um we had to cover those bases but yeah i mean i i am sort of really psyched at how how good the record is
2: well, well, so, so before we go, well, I want to get to Albert in a second cause he shows up in the video as well, which is fantastic. But d- when did the creation of this record come together for you guys? Did you start working on it a while ago? Did you all, you know, it's been so long since you made a, st- a studio record. Did you all just say now's the right time and come together and write it very quickly? What, what about the material itself?
3: Yeah. Well, it- we were very comfortable touring and, and, uh, and perhaps resting on our, our laurels. But around 2018, we said, okay, let's make, a, let's make another record. And we started talking to record companies. And, uh, and by 2019, we'd we, uh, taken a, a very good offer from Frontier's record to uh, not only make this record, but also reissue some of the other records we had rights to and some of the video concerts we had rights to. So this all came together as a as a package and then uh last summer uh in between touring we did a lot of rehearsals uh, with the demos that we'd written um going into it and so we were fairly well prepared when we did the basic tracks unfortunately we did the basic tracks before the covid hit and after the covid hit we couldn't get together anymore but we finished the record Uh, at our home studios and collaborating basically over the internet with uh, uh, Zoom and other apps like that to look at each other. We couldn't play together in real time, but we could produce each other and, and basically oversee what we were doing at home. So there was a community thing about it, and that's how we did it.
2: You know, the other thing that's significant about this record now, now there have been a lot of people over the decades that have been in and out of Blue Oyster Cult, but for, for you, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, this is the first BOC album made with the lineup that you currently tour with. Is that correct?
3: Right. Yep. And, uh, and Richie Castellano and Jules Rodino, they've been in the band for over 10 years, like 12, 13, 15 years. Danny Miranda was in the band in the 2000s. And uh, then he left us to do the Queen World Tour with Paul Rogers. and then after that he was in Meatloaf for a while, and now he's back with us again. So he's he's a veteran, also.
2: When you when you think of all the different people that have been in and out of the band, of course you and, and Eric being the constants. How do you think that impacted the history of Blue Oyster Cult, Buck? Do you think that's been a positive? Do you think that having different people rolling in and out and, and putting their imprint on things or working with them has inspired you and, and Eric to in, in some ways, or would you have preferred that Blue Oyster Cult in the last 50 years would have been more uh, of the same you know, unit of guys? What are the pros and cons of that as you see it?
3: Yeah, I'm, as far as preference, it's hard to judge since since we didn't do that. I mean, I think the fans would sort of probably like the uh, the original lineup to stay, you know, the same. Uh, I wish the Beatles were still together, but they're not. You know, I wish Brian Jones was still alive, but he's not same with the Who, you know. But... Um, Certainly Blue Oyster Cult in twenty twenty is based, is definitely a product of the people that are in it. And if you listen to the symbol Remains, of the new record, you're gonna hear that. You know, even though the it still sounds like Blue Oyster Cult because we sort of can't help ourselves as far as Eric and I, as far as our singing and playing, it's gonna sound like us.
2: Yeah, it really does. And it's also in listening to the record and what I've heard of it, I've heard four songs, it's um there's a lot of, it's, it's all Blue Oyster cult. It, it sounds very contemporary to me, but still has the classic sound. And there's a lot of diversity among the direction of the songs, which I, I guess in a way was always a hallmark of of BOC. But on this album, you know, there's heavy stuff on it. There's some, some spacey stuff. There's some very rich sounding things. It, there, there, is that something you went for is to really create, you know, sh- show some different sides of the band all within this record?
3: Yeah, I think if you go back to our catalog, we're always pretty much all over the place. But I think on this record, we're all over the place probably more than we ever have been. And I think that's because it's it's all about the song and not so much the genre or the image. You know, I think one of BOC's uh, 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 um, limitations as far as promotion was it was hard to put us in a genre, you know, and. (laughs) <laughs> that's still that's still an effect. You know, you can't really say what genre definitively we belong in because we're all over the place. You know, and it's all about the song. Every song is the song. You know, and it's you can't you can't put it in uh, in one basket.
2: Talk about Albert Bouchard. Speaking of original members coming back in on this, he actually appears on the record as well.
3: Yes. Yeah. Yeah, we we invited Albert to uh, participate, play the song, play the cabal on uh, "That Was Me," the op- the title track, the opening track of the record, and um, he also sings backgrounds, and um, he's on a couple of cuts, and he was happy to do it, and we were happy to have him. Yes, you know, so good.
2: What does he? What does he do now, Buck? is, is he? Does he have a desire to? to do more with the band or do you, do you guys foresee exploring more with him or is he, is he not in that place right now?
3: Well, he's, he's recording with blue coop. He's, he's doing a variety of of projects and uh, I'm, I'm doing some stuff with him. I collaborated with him on, on some uh, Michael Moorcock uh, um, songs. And so we're cordial, but as far as, as far as, being in the band, you know, he was in the band and, uh, and it's not like we don't, we don't talk to each other, but, um, uh, I don't know if I'm explaining this right, but
0: that's,
3: what, that's the way it is.
2: No, well, it sounds to me like you guys are clearly on, on, yeah. on fine terms. It's just, he's off on, yeah. he's been on his trip doing his thing and you guys are very much consolidated with the lineup you have right now that you're very happy with. True that. So. Uh, The album comes out on October 9th, and I'm assuming you are, like everybody, in this holding pattern, waiting to see when you're going to be able to get out, and I'm I'm sure you're dying to play some stuff from it. Uh, Is there any Blue Oyster Cult live shows on the books right now, or are you still in wait-and-see mode?
3: Just about every show that we had scheduled this year has been rescheduled for 2021, almost on the identical date. We we're supposed to have been in Europe twice already this year. We had a uh, we, we had a, a, a UK tour with Deep Purple in October. That's been moved to October 2021. Uh, some of the big festivals, uh, Sweden Rock, and some of the other ones are are rescheduled for next year. So uh, I got my fingers crossed. I don't think I don't think this germ can go on forever. It's got to die down at some point. So. And
2: obviously, you, you, certainly you and Eric have been doing this for a really long time. You're older now. What is it going to take for the two of you? What, What are you going to need to see to be comfortable to go back out on the road and be around a lot of people and be in a public setting again? Are you of the mindset of, well, until there's a vaccine, I'm staying put? Or... What sort of things are you... Because we're already seeing bands go out there and play shows in certain cities right now in certain places where there's loose restrictions. Where's your head at on that? We
3: we did a a drive-in show in uh, July up in Keene, New Hampshire, and that that worked out fine. It was... um, I personally am not very uh, afraid of, of the COVID. You know, it's... I would... I put the mask on and, and use the hand sanitizer, but other than that, I'm trying to live a normal life. You know, and let me I ask say? you, let me ask
2: you this. Yeah. So, so I, in the last, um, I don't know, the last couple of weeks alone, I've had, uh, members of sticks on this show, members of deep purple on this show, members of Kansas on this show. And I am very encouraged. And I think it's wonderful that a lot of these bands with 40, 50 year histories are still making new music. There's a very divided thought about that though. I talked to some artists with long histories and they're like, what's the point? You know, people, maybe our fans buy it in the first week and it's forgotten. And then we can't, most people don't want to see it played live and they, you know, they're there for the hits and we'll just play the hits. And others are like, no, it's still important to make new music. We don't care what the commercial viability of it is at this point. Where do you land on that? Because Blue Oyster Cult hasn't made a record of studio material until this in 19 years. So were you of that mindset until this material came around and this offer to make the record came about? What What's your thoughts on the you know what you can do with this commercially? Because it seems to be unbelievably difficult for classic artists.
3: Yeah, I I don't fool myself into thinking we're going to break onto the pop charts and 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 displace some of the current uh, pop artists because when I listen to that, it doesn't sound anything at all like like what we do. And uh, <laughs> but uh, as far as as doing new stuff, I think given the amount of years we took off without making a, a record of new material, we were content to not do it. But at this point. Uh, I think we were excited to get back into it. It took a little bit to get the cobwebs off, frankly. But uh, once we started rehearsing, it, uh, the idea of creating new stuff, got, got uh, it's really enjoyable. I enjoy being in the studio. I don't think I've ever not enjoyed a minute of being in a recording studio. I really like it.
2: Yeah, I, I it just as a fan and knowing and having heard, some of your your coming record and how good it is and like you know kansas made a really good record recently deep purple's new record some are saying it's their best record in 20 years but it's just as a fan for me it's so amazingly frustrating because it just seems like the core base of all these bands is well if it's a case of bloister cult it's well yeah don't you know don't fear the reaper and burn it for you that's what you know godzilla that's what we're there for like no there is some valid new music and just getting people to know and care about it. Even from where I sit, you know, doing this on radio, as much as I push Mm -hmm. it, it's very hard to get it. People just seem so set in, in, in their ways. And they only view a band for, for the hits. I I just find it immensely frustrating, but I'm appreciative of the bands that are still making, you know, great new stuff, but it it is a challenge. Yeah. Uh, one
3: One upside of the uh, internet age and this and streaming is that everybody can hear your entire catalog now. If you want to go on YouTube or if you belong to Spotify or Apple Music or Google or whatever, you know you can hear you can hear the the legacy artists and and we're getting fans, new fans from all over the place that just have discovered the depth of our catalog and what we've already done. So. And then if they happen to see us live, you know, I think they're immediately hooked in because the band is, I won't say we're well unique because I think any of the, any of the legacy bands that are still out there are pretty good or they wouldn't be doing it. You know, you know like bands like Kansas are just great. You know, those sticks, they, they all play great. So um, again, you know, my eyes are open as far as, as far as what the the potential is, as far as accepting, um our our new music but uh heck you know I, I I'll uh, I'll let let the people be the judge because uh, I I really dig it
2: why why do you think and and this may this may be tough for you to answer but why do you think that uh we have a ton of classic rock radio stations across this country that probably a bunch of them as we speak are playing don't fear the reaper right now <laughs> you know? i'm sure yeah. i'm sure there's oh, yeah, a no. bunch of them playing no, it as are. we <laughs> speak um why why do you think why do you think they're so open why do you think so many of them especially in the big markets are so resistant not just blue oyster cult but all of these legacy bands are so resistant to giving new music regardless of its quality a spot on the air. What 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 do you think it is? Do you think they think it's a tune out or what do you think the mentality is there? Have you ever thought about it?
3: Yeah, I, the you know, the oldie stations or the classic rock stations, the stations that play the, the 70s stuff is uh, it's they're basically selling memories to the listener basically. You know, they want to I appreciate it when they just go deep cuts on those on those stations, you know, they, they don't play the same 50 songs. So Yeah but i understand why they don't play new music you know and and there really isn't a place for for uh new music by legacy artists so i think word of mouth and and playlists and that kind of thing on the streaming services is is the way to go now if you want to spread that word and when guys you look- like Eddie Trump
2: <laughs> well thank you. When you when you well, look at when you look <laughs> at statistics because one of the benefits of the age that we're in when it comes to streaming and all that is I'm sure as an artist and as a songwriter you get you get an accounting. You get you know exactly what people are listening to the most, what they're pulling up online the most, what the streaming services are being hit for the most when it comes to Blue Oyster cult. Safe to say, oh, yeah. Safe they to is. say exactly. don't fear the reaper is the biggest one for you.
3: Oh yeah, it is. What else is on there? On, What's Halloween. give me the top ah, three October or five? 31st. I'm sorry. That's what? I said. I, I said, said give I me. Said, give, re-
2: no, what I was going to say is give me your give me the top three or five uh, of the of the most played.
3: Oh, it's it's definitely the Reaper, followed by Burner for You and Godzilla, and but it's funny to see the Reaper uh, airplay or, you know, streams go up on every Halloween. It's just like, there's a huge spike every Halloween. Did you have any idea when
2: you guys were making that song that it was going to be that song for you? Was there anything special about writing it or recording it where you said you walked out of the studio that day saying, well, that, that could be our, Every artist has that song that they are completely associated with the iconic song. Did you ever have any inkling, anything special about
3: recording um, or writing no that? Idea as far as no idea, as far as what it's actually done. But I think when we finished recording it and listened to it, we knew it was going to be like a strong FM song. You know, I didn't, didn't, I had no idea that it would make it to what was then AM radio, you know, the, the top 40, which it did. But, uh, uh, no, I mean, it, the longevity of that song has really surprised me and everyone, I guess.
2: And, you know, sadly, as I'm sure you know, recently we lost a legendary producer, Martin Birch, who worked on a couple classic Blue Oyster Cult records. Um, what are your recollections yes, but, about Martin and, and working with him as a producer, and were you still in touch with him?
3: I hadn't talked to him in quite a while. In fact, he kind of dropped out of uh, a public uh, whatever as far as I know, but uh yeah, I I I loved working Barn and so the whole band on uh Erectus and Fire of An Origin. And uh he also taught me a lot about recording music uh, as far as me being uh able to do myself in my home studio. He really taught me a lot about how to how to get it down and, and, and get it down with quality. And he was a funny guy and very enthusiastic. As a producer, he was great because he, he, he wasn't really forceful in, in telling you to do it his way. But every time he'd make a suggestion, he would nudge you to, to make what you were doing better. So he was very good in that regard. Super easy to relate to the artists that he worked with. Also, I believe that he never worked with people he didn't want to work with. So therefore, he was always happy about what he was doing. You know, He didn't record he was- people he didn't like.
2: Yeah, he was basically another member of Iron Maiden at one point. He did all their classic records and the purple stuff. You know, you know what floored me about him, Buck, when I heard he passed away and I didn't know him at all, but I was a huge fan of his work. I had assumed he would have been much, much older than 71 uh, given that he had been retired from producing for like 20 plus years. But, but when I did a little research, he started super young and then he retired super young. Um, I heard he had like a big interest in martial arts and he left music to move to Japan and study.
3: Yeah. He, uh, yeah, he was our age. Martin was. And, um, he was, uh, he was financially comfortable, you know, from, from the works that he's done. And I, I think he came for some money, too, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, he, he, he did seem like an artist. He seemed like another, another artist as much as we were. And that's the way he related to the people he worked with, as far as I know, because that's, that's what was our experience. You know? and it, it was uh, probably the, probably the best producer that we had as far as enjoying the experience.
2: Hey, I want to ask you about one other song from your older catalog that's always been one of my favorites, and it, it got some play, and it did it did well at the time, but I, I think it's somewhat overlooked, and I absolutely love the song, and that's Take Me Away, which, if I'm not mistaken, was written or co-written with Aldo Nova. Tell me a little bit about that song, because I, I think it's a great one in your catalog.
3: Yeah. The, the, when um, Aldo was, was managed by Sandy Perlman, who is our manager and mentor, at the time, that's how we knew Aldo. And uh, we were touring together. Aldo was opening for Blue Oyster Cult. And this was around the time we worked with Martin Birch, too. And Aldo had, had this track, and, and Aldo had some words on it. But he said, you know, I got this, tr- I got this song, but would you guys be interested in it? And we liked the music, and Eric took the music, and he wrote the words to take me away. And then we recorded it, and that's how that happened. On uh, yeah. Fire but an Origin, I believe it. No, it was on, uh, what was that on? Um, mainly not Fire
2: of an Un- Uh It escapes yeah. me at the moment. The Re- Revolution, by yeah. Revolution by Night? was
3: Revolution by Night? Was Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. My, you know, my brain's a sip. Don't ask me about my own catalog. I can't answer <laughs> the
2: question. <laughs> you, you know, and actually, now that I'm thinking about timeline stuff, talking about Martin yeah. Birch, he produced Heaven yeah. and Hell, which is one of my favorite Sabbath records. And of course, you guys yeah, toured with Sabbath great. then. When you guys did the Black and Blue tour, uh, which, of course, was Dio's first tour with Sabbath and the first record, right. uh, Martin did it. So mm-hmm. there was a bit of a connection all the way around, around that time, now that I'm thinking about it.
3: Yeah, actually, the reason we did that tour is that uh, Sandy Perlman was managing Sabbath for a brief period there when, when uh, we did that tour. So that what, the connection is, is, is more even more than that. What were
2: your recollections about the Black and Blue tour? Was it a positive experience for you guys? Did you feel it was successful? Well, and-
3: you know we we love we love Sabbath, but I don't think Sabbath was very happy with Sandy's management. So <laughs> they were they were not happy during that tour. You know, and unfortunately, it, you know, it was it was not as it wasn't as rewarding personally as it could have been.
2: Yeah, and it was a tough time for Ronnie because he was as brilliant as he was, and as great as the Heaven and Hell record was, uh, he had told me this many times. It was a tough spot for him because people were just sort of trying to accept Sabbath with a new singer at the time.
3: Yeah, well, that, the band was undeniably good, you know, and Heaven and Hell is just a just a wonderful record. So, you know, you know he needn't that worried about that part of it. Yeah,
2: yeah. Now you put a video out the song is called box in my head. It's from the new album from blue oyster cult, which again is out on October 9th. The symbol remains. And this, uh, the previous track had Eric on it. This one's got you on, on, uh, lead vocals. What do you want to tell people about this song? Buck? What, what can you share on it?
3: Yeah. Well, I'll say, i say that was me. The Eric song. That's the real rocker. That's, that's, that's the heavy tune in you know, box in my head is sort of a power pop tune which I wrote with the lyric in mind, America's the lyric box in my head is about a fellow explaining to, to a a gal who's interested in him, that, you know, that he's sort of a complex uh, personality. And, and if, and if she really wants to know him, you know, she's welcome into his head, but watch out what's in there.
2: I just thought of something I wanted to ask you too. Sorry. It just, this just came to me. So you and Eric have been blue oyster cult and been there day one right through now fifty years whatever it's been where how how much longer do you see yourself doing this do you do you, you I mean you made you just made a record here that's coming out that has a tremendous energy to it that I, I think is some of the best stuff you've done in a while is it just you're just going to take it as it comes or do you see a, an end where you would envision wanting to retire uh,
3: I think at some point we're not going to want to just you know drag ourselves all over the world to play the playing part is not really the hard part you know the traveling is the worst part so with um i'd say the lights on at the end of the tunnel but how long we're going to do it i don't know be- we have to be careful what we wish for if, if this record does something i would be obliged to go out and uh, and promote it and maybe maybe do something else and maybe we'll record something else who knows the, the way uh, this record was finished was relatively painless as far as working remotely over each other's studios. And depending upon you know, how the world recovers from, uh, from the, uh, the Wuhan virus, we'll, we'll figure out how it's going to go. You know, I'd, I'd say at some point we'll stop, but I couldn't tell you when today.
2: Because that's a concern from fans as well right now. When you've got artists that have been doing this for a long time, And, and you were, you know, you start to think about, okay, when are they going to end being on the sidelines, not being able to tour uh, the fans are worried that some artists, by the time it's all clear, may not, who are older may not want to go back out there and be, you know what, maybe this is a good omen. Maybe it is time to just stay home, but it sounds like, you know, things get good again. You, You guys still have some life left in you.
3: I believe we would. Yeah, I think twenty twenty one, if if, uh, if if crowds are permitted again, we'll we'll be out there. And uh, I also think we're getting comfortable with the video thing and the, and the the online thing. So I wouldn't be surprised if you saw us in one form or another, you know, going forward out there.
2: When when BOC ends, is there a way you'd like to see it end? Would you like to do a big? farewell sort of celebration where you'd bring back maybe some people that had been in the band over the years, or do you envision it being more of sort of like a quiet thing and just sort of going away, you know, okay, that was sort of our last show and it, it dissipates. Well,
3: 2022 is 50 years for the release of the first Loistair called album. So we'll, we'll probably do something commemorative in 2022. Well, that, that what it is, we at I least... Couldn't say, but- but, yeah. you know, I, there, there's no reason not to do something commemorative, so we probably will.
2: And I know I keep saying last things, but things keep popping in my head. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, does it bother you like it does me and so many other fans that BOC hasn't been on a ballot yet?
3: Uh, Yeah, I'm not holding my breath to get in the Hall of Fame. It would be nice. But, uh, again, I, I think there's there must be reasons why, like, Lowester, Colton's a lot of our peers haven't really been seriously considered. You know why? While you, you might consider lesser artists have uh, have gotten in there or gotten nominated, so but you know that's not for me to say.
2: Well, I mean it's it's ludicrous because the uh, the influence. I mean everybody from Metallica on has covered your material, and it's uh, the influence which is one of their biggest criteria.s is obvious everywhere. Buck, it's great to talk to you. My best to you and the family. Congratulations on this record. Again, it's called The Symbol Remains. It's out everywhere on October 9th, the first album of all new BOC material in nearly 20 years. And I can tell you, having heard a good portion of it, it really is a stellar record. All the best to you. Send my best to Eric as well. I saw Eric actually a few weeks ago. We were on a Zoom thing together. But um, my best to the guys, and I hope when all this clears, get a chance to see out there live sometime soon.
3: No, it's good to talk to you again, Eddie. I had fun the first time.
2: All right. Thank you so much. Anytime, you're always welcome. Thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye. Take care. Thanks to Buck from Blue Oyster Cult, and thanks earlier to Don Dock, and hope you enjoyed the interviews for you uh, that we had on this week's podcast. Of course, next week, we do it all over again with another new episode on Thursdays. Uh, be sure to subscribe. Be sure to favorite. Be sure to listen. Be sure to do... Well, do all the things you can do (laughs) with the podcast. I appreciate the support, and thank you for listening wherever you are in the world doing so. Thanks to Katie Irizarry. She puts this together for me every week and is the producer. And, of course, thanks to SiriusXM. The interviews you hear are courtesy of my daily radio show, Trunk Nation, heard Monday through Friday, live 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time on Channel 106 with a nightly replay, 10 to midnight Eastern. Next week, I think I'm going to bring you my recent Ace Freely interview. Those are always entertaining, so expect that next week. I believe that's where we're headed, but just keep an eye on social media. I always let you know what's going on on Twitter, at Eddie Trunk, Instagram as well, and, of course, eddietrunk.com is the official online home. Have a great week, everybody, and I'll catch you next Thursday for another episode, or hopefully each and every day on volume if you're in the U.S. or Canada. Bye-bye.